Have you ever thought about that while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb? I did. I actually bought two homes in Albuquerque that I Airbnb'd, and it was just an amazing investment, honestly, because, you know, as you are accruing value in your property, you are also making money on the Airbnbs. It's amazing. So your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 21 Seeds Infused Tequila is a must-have. It's an award-winning tequila. It's infused with real juice, with real fruit, which means the flavors are built in. It's real. So you need like two or three ingredients to make your perfect cocktail. Hey, um, you know how I'm always trying to keep my house parties exciting? New cocktails? <laughs> do you? Yeah. Okay, well, here's something that's going to flip the script. Okay. All right. 21 Seeds Infused Tequila. Yeah. yeah. Tell me more about this, right. Oliver Hudson. Yeah, 21 Seeds is an award-winning tequila that's infused with juice from real fruits. You only need two to three ingredients to make the perfect cocktail. Wait a minute. I think I know what brand you're talking about. You know why? Yeah. Because 21 Seeds is founded by two sisters and their friend. It's female founded. That's right. See? Sounds See like how I know? Something I can get behind. I know. Well, there's a good story behind that for sure. Listen, if you love tequila... You have to try 21 Seeds Infused Tequila. Enjoy responsibly. 21 Seeds Diageo, New York, New York. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Kate Hudson. And my name is Oliver Hudson. We wanted to do something that highlighted our relationship. And what it's like to be siblings. We are a sibling rivalry. No. No, sibling rivalry. Don't do that with your mouth. <laughs> sibling rivalry. That's good. Esther Perot, I loved this, Oliver. Mm-hmm. This was amazing. I know. I could have talked to her. For many, many hours. Esther Perel is a psychotherapist and an expert on relationships and sexuality. Right. That's why we had a lot in common. (laughs) I am too. Oh, Jesus. She has a a really popular podcast called Where Should We Begin? I love this podcast. It's fascinating. I get so sucked into this Mm -hmm. podcast because she really like... Well, first of all, you think it's not going to be a a relatable situation because some of them are really extreme. And then there's like you just everything about relationships becomes relatable. But she has an she has an amazing story. I mean, even aside from sort of what she does and how popular she is, you know, her parents were Holocaust survivors. And, you know, she gets into sort of how they came to the West yeah, and also to, she talked a lot about you know the legacy of trauma yeah. and resilience and you know how her parents managed that. It was really really 
really interesting. And obviously- We hit some cool topics, you know. I know that people, a lot of people know who she is and we we tried to sort of hit some different topics, you know. Importance of physical touch. We talked about that, which is big for me because my love language is physical touch, as everyone knows. staying connected to people. Yeah. You know, like the, the importance of staying connected- and well, the, um, how about we talk also the impact? Of, yes, of, I was just going to say that of uh, technology, right? And loneliness. Yep. Yeah. And then, then I sort of countered with, but can't tech, especially watching these boys now with their VRs and stuff. As crazy as it is, they are they are engaged in a community and and with other people and laughing and sharing. No, uh, it's it's terrible for their. It's, it's terrible. Not. Okay, this was my favorite thing that she said. And we're going to leave you with this, and then we're going to start our okay. podcast with Esther Perel. She said, sex is not something you do. It's somewhere you go. Mm-hmm. So yeah. our sibling revelry family, please enjoy Esther Perel. I just want to say I'm very excited, Esther, to have this time with you Um And before we even start, I did this movie this summer called Knives Out. I did Knives Out 2 with Catherine Hahn, who uh, was someone I worked with on a movie called How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days 20 years ago. And all she could talk about was your book, was Mating in Captivity. She was just completely obsessed. She then gave me your book. And so you were a big theme of our summer. I just wanted to tell you that. And Anyway, I'm just so excited to have this opportunity to talk to you. Yes. Good. I'm pleased to be here. How about you? <laughs> and I can't wait because I have a lot of problems and I have uh, many situations that I've, I relate to. You know, I mm-hmm. watched your TED Talk on infidelity. Yeah. We'll get in. I want to get into all that. Uh, Esther, I want to start really with where you um, were born and your family history. Your story is really fascinating and quite traumatic, actually, for your parents. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about where you came from. So I'm born in Belgium, um, the daughter of two uh, Polish Holocaust survivors who both were the only survivors of their entire families and who kind of arrived to Belgium by fluke uh, because my father had helped somebody in the concentration camp who was Belgian and said, just come with me. And then basically proceeded to stay another five years as illegal refugees in Belgium. But I come, my brother is born in 46 and I arrive quite a few years later. So in a way, um, I have less of the immediacy of that experience um, in my veins, but I have the second degree (laughs) that uh, was transmitted to me. And, um, And basically... I would say the legacy of uh, of my parents was very much one of um, we survived this in order to embrace life, in order to really um, live for all of those who didn't have the opportunity to. And so the quality of aliveness um, was very, very important. And I think that I received both the what you call the traumatic legacy, but also the survival and the revival narrative that accompanied that. Mm. And the traumatic legacy, sort of how do those two things coexist where you're living in a traumatic legacy, but also this sort of revival? Uh-huh. Uh, 
I mean, the, the traumatic legacy is basically lost, the loss of everything, your community, your home, your family, your siblings, 200 people on each side. It's just like massive, massive amounts of loss and dismantlement and grief. And then the, the revival is um, we, we, we're going to rebuild. I think that the, 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 the first thing in the plot of revival is that is the meaning of a child. You have children in order to replenish, in order to, to bring back life on the face of death as an antidote to it. So that's the first thing. It's like we are on some level considered miracle children in that sense. Um, I think, um, that's the, the, the first sense is that, you know, you carry the names of people. You, you remember where you come from and where, you know, and you never forget where you come from, you know, regardless of where you think you're going to go. So there's this constant connection to a history that is bigger than you. And that is true for your history. I would say that's also true for your problems. Your problems, you know, <laughs> put them in the bigger perspective and then you'll see if they're really problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What about what about growing up? You know, sometimes trauma is swept under the rug, or legacy or history is swept under the rug, and sometimes the, it, there's heavily communicated, meaning your parents yes, open yes, about yes. what happened, open about their experiences, their feelings, their emotions, all of that with you as so, as kids. It's a great. It's a it's a it's a real. I mean, you know, I come from my, my entire community in Antwerp in Belgium were Holocaust survivors. So it wasn't just my family. It was it was not like we were different from the people around us. Yes, we were very different from the people in the neighborhood, but not from the community itself. So it was everybody had similar stories. So as a child also, I wasn't alone with this whole thing, living in a in a dark secret. So that's a very important difference in terms of legacy of trauma. You're not, you're not busy with secrecy, with shame, with lies, with hiding. You know, now I was very lucky that I had parents who talked about their experiences. So that really helped. Both of them were amazing storytellers. And I was also lucky, I would say, that my parents were, had a way of telling the story that made it possible for us to listen. We didn't cringe. We didn't have to, you know, shy away from like stuff that was unbearable to listen to. At the same time, I can't say that they had a keen understanding of child development. So the story was told as is, mm-hmm. <laughs> unedited, regardless if you were three, six or nine. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, right. um, that's an important thing. But, but they, they, you know, there is a way of looking at the stories of survivors if the lens was through the lens of victimization or if the lens was, the story was through the lens of heroism. And I have to say my parents had more of the side of heroism. So the stories were stories of resilience, stories of how they survived, how they beat the system, how they found another potato, how they made, you know, how they helped each other, how they stayed hopeful rather than the other side, mm. which I learned much, much later. So that's, I think, a, a major distinction. I was I was talking about that um, just because my, my mom is very invested in you know, people's mental fitness. And Mm -hmm. one of the things we were talking about was resiliency and that those who have a tendency to to do the more sort of resilient, more optimistic, um, you know, it is is what's in the best interest of your mental health is to try to look at the, you know, how can we reprogram our brain to actually look in that direction versus what we're probably more programmed to do, which is the other. Do you agree with that? 
I don't think that that bears true historically, you know. I think that um, people, you know, if you ask most survivors of many situations, war situations, larger psychosocial traumas, they will tell you that a portion of what made them arrive to where they are is luck. A portion is a deep sense of connection to their roots, a sense of I'm fighting for a reason. I'm not just fighting to stay alive. I'm fighting for the people who in my group who haven't had the opportunity to stay alive. So my survival is bigger than just myself. I'm attached to a longer story. This is true for, across the globe. So true for Palestinian children. This is true for, for, for many people. That resilience is deeply anchored in a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning. That's the uh, that's the the Viktor Frankl uh, way of looking at it as well. And then the sense that you had people who helped you. They, you. It's very rare that people look at the resilience as just an individual plot. Me and my skills, <laughs> me and my you know my ways of going about it. There were people I connected with others. I found others on the road. I you know somebody at that moment was you know threw me a piece of bread. Things like that. It's a, it's, it's very much the notion that in the midst of a collective trauma, resilience is also collective. Mm -hmm. Was this something? I mean, that you were always interested in psychology or human behavior. I've read that you were interested in it as a teenager, and so do yes. you feel like this was sort of your calling and and always <laughs> spoke to you? I mean, at first, I don't think I was interested in psychology as a calling. I think one is interested in psychology because one wants to understand oneself. Why am I having such problems? Why am I so sad? Why do I have melancholy? You know, why do I feel like I experience things that belong to my parents as if they had happened to me? Why do I have those nightmares? Why does this boy not like me? Whatever the thing is that mm -hmm. I was probably dealing with. But I also, I had a keen curiosity about like, why, are, why can people get so evil? You know, and how can the same person who can be so evil one minute turn around and be so sweet to their own children the next minute? Like, what is, you know, what is evil and, and how, what is human about how evil we can be? And then the same thing would be true as what is pain? Like, how do we overcome pain? You know, how do we overcome suffering? What do we do with it? And what really helps? And those kind of questions, I think I was really interested in early on. And, and I think, a part of my interest in psychology probably was, you know, there was a sense in my family that, you know, my problems were kind of paled in comparison with the kind of massive suffering that my parents and all the parents of my friends had experienced. And I just, you know, I, I, I felt like I don't really have a reason to be sad. And yet I often was. Or, you know, the, I didn't know where to go. So I went to read. And I also hated school. So I went to see if people had a different way of talking about children than the way that we were being treated in this very rigid system mm -hmm. that I was in. You know, I, I went to the books to see there must be another way. This cannot be the only, <laughs> the only way. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you're an outside thinker and actually stumbled upon your calling, really, just through the way that you were feeling about yourself and your interest in your own human condition, I guess. You know, I love that. Yes. I, I mean, you could also say that if you're a avid reader and you like novels, 
then you are not by nature interested in psychology. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. characters in a book are, is psychology. It's a keen understanding of how we are. And so I went from that. I was actually more interested first in theater and in literature. And that brought me to psychology. Were your parents very physical with each other and amorous and sensual openly? You know, is that something that you grew up with witnessing and and sort of taking that on? In one direction. My father was very amorous of my mother. He was always kissing her and holding her and, 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 and complimenting her and he adored her. Utterly. And my mother was very happy to take the compliments. (laughs) (laughs) But there was no reciprocation? Not exactly. I mean, yes, the reciprocation came in the form of the receiving. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, she she liked it. But no, she wasn't going around saying, you look so beautiful. Whereas he just couldn't stop saying, you know, (laughs) and on and on like that. Um, and that we we definitely witnessed that you know he he always thought that he, you know he had lucked out that that he had there would never have been a pre a pre war marriage. Mm. My mother was more educated. My mother was well read. My mother came from a religious aristocratic background. My father was rather illiterate. He went to school three years in his life. He was he came from a tiny village. He was much more peasant stock. Wow. And uh, um, and. You know, it was definitely not, uh, that would never have happened. Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. And, they, and, and they both lost their whole everybody. F- everybody. Wow. Oh, isn't that, isn't that kind of, I just, it, yeah. it gives me like chills all the way up my, my body. Wow. They were the youngest, each one of their families. She had seven siblings, he had nine siblings, and all of them married with kids and everything. So they met on the road of liberation. The they day, did. the day, yes, the day after they were liberated, they just met on the road, as oh they were. You know, people God. were looking for other people who had come from similar, close yes. by towns and may know of somebody, and that's kind of how they hooked up. Wow. The, the the man the man <laughs> who delivered Oliver and I was uh, is a survivor, and mm-hmm. he lost his his whole family, and he he's very very open about his story, and he literally for I think it was like a year, couldn't find anybody in his family and then found his sister. Mm. Um, wow. And yeah, so, you know, these stories that we hear are sort of unimaginable. And yet and yet, there are still stories like this happening right now as we speak. You know, when you were saying you were studying and sort of interested in, in families and cultural transition, um, and and how did you find yourself in in that work and in your studies? You know, what was the one thing that really stuck out the most when you were really looking at the, those kinds of transitions mm-hmm. for people? So I looked at three groups basically. I looked at immigrant families, and among the immigrant families, I studied families who had experienced forced migration, and families who had experienced voluntary migration to Europe, to Canada, to the U.S. You know, various parts of the world. And, um, and what was different? How did the f- experience of having to come affect how people experienced the receiving country? <laughs> um, you know, how they adapted, what they held on to from their past, from their own culture, how much they were open and willing to embrace the new culture and things like that. You know, I definitely was part of an entire immigrant community that 
I basically showed up for no reason to this country, had nothing in common with that country. And uh, and it was very interesting to see, you know, how do you become a Belgian, a European, a Western European, you know, um, where, where do you stumble? You know, how does it change the couple relationship? How does it change your attitude towards children? How do you change your attitude towards what feelings can be expressed and not expressed? What is the meaning of family in those cultures, etc.? Then I got interested very much in working with mixed couples, interracial, intercultural, interreligious families, because they also are going through cultural transition, but it happens in their own living room. They're not crossing borders necessarily, but psychologically they are and so and I speak multiple languages and it was just a fascinating way of looking at the world it it was a way of traveling even if I wasn't traveling you know and then I got interested in how does the digital really change dynamics in in families and relationships and um, it's an endlessly fascinating subject and what um, the, I can't even say is that was there one main thing you know it uh, it kept me busy for 20 years really um, to look at you know what is the attitude to money to time to sex to illness to boundaries to loyalty to the role of the individual to the importance of happiness how do all these things you know, line up in particular cultures and in particular families, and especially when the family is in transition. How do people, you know, use the ocean either to strengthen their connection to the past and then use that connection to the past to help them become part of the new place? Or how much do they use the oceans to dump the past and to think I'm going to reinvent myself anew? And then how much do these roles play themselves out among different family members in one family? Mm. Mm-hmm. What's the future look like? It looks pretty sweet. It looks pretty buff. If you're buff. a part of this community. Future fitness, baby. Okay, so future is a new workout experience. Mm-hmm. It pairs you one-on-one with a fitness coach who will map out a custom workout plan and also keep you totally accountable every single day all through the future app. That's right. You, 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 you sign into the app. You put in your weight, your height, what you want to accomplish, all of the statistics, and then you get to choose your own trainer. At that point, your trainer is going to FaceTime you. They're going to text you. You're going to have an actual personal relationship with this person Mm -hmm. and curate workouts to what your lifestyle looks like, to where you are in the world. Future Fitness, my coach, Mm -hmm. can actually find out where I'm staying, Mm -hmm. what kind of facilities I have nearby, they can literally create my workout while I'm traveling. The yeah, thing no, and then in intervals, you'll do push-ups and some sit-ups and they'll create and curate this workout exactly. for you. So if you're ready to invest in your long-term health and wellness, you can get started with your future coach right now with 50% off your first three months at tryfuture.com slash sibling. Again, that's tryfuture.com slash sibling. We love Sakara. I know you guys know this. If you are an avid um, an avid sibling revelry listener, you know we love Sakara. This is a female-founded company. If you're trying to eat healthy, Sakara to me is a great restart. It's a great plan. This is a food meal plan. It's plant-rich, ready-to-eat meals, and functional wellness essentials 
to nourish your body. Mm-hmm. And they do it with whole organic ingredients that retrain your palate and help you break up with your sweet tooth and all of the other habits that you might have. Sakara is a wellness company that's anchored in food as medicine on a mission to nourish your body through the power of plants. You know, and, and when it's ready for you and done and prepared, nothing's easier. As of right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash sibling or enter code sibling at checkout. That's Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A.com slash sibling to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash sibling. You talk about the digital age too, and all of these big themes that you're talking about. You know, I, I just we're all constantly evolving. You know, mm-hmm. always constantly yeah. evolving. Even morality, and this is my own opinion, morality has evolved. I, I just don't believe that there is one singular. There's no. There's one singular way. You know, a hundred years ago, morality looked different than it did today. It seems. Now, when you're dealing in your practice and sort of when you have studied for so long, how have you seen this digital age, this age of information where everything's at your fingertips, shift the dynamic of humanity, you know, from an emotional place, not, not, not physical, not computers and your phones necessarily, but, you know, dealing with sort of how connected we are, especially with sex you know, especially with sex nowadays and <laughs> our kids, they, they're all, all the, they're growing up now in a different world of sexuality. I mean, their idea of what is supposed to be sex is completely different. What would you different. say is one way it's changed for you? For me? You didn't always have the digital in your life. No, right? I, I miss okay. when there was no digital. You know, I mean, one way it's changed is I feel like I've even gotten lazier, if that's possible. You know, <clears throat> we used to be outside all the time. You know, we were on our bikes. We were in the world more. Mm-hmm. And now it seems like we are more right here, you know, um, and watching my kids and having to balance that as well, making sure that they do get out of the house and they do get off of their tablets and, yep. and, and computers. But at the same time, we're living in this world. So I'm not going to deprive them of the, of the future, but I just try to balance it, really. Do you bring your phones to the table? Um, yeah. I mean, I do. I, you know, I, Kate, I don't know, but I do. I'm pretty strict with phones. I mean, I have my moments where I get lazy and I don't, but I'm pretty strict with the phone thing. And I even do that for my own sake. It's like, I'm not even saying that to my kids. I'm saying it to myself. Yes, yes. If the kids, <laughs> they're often better than us. I find it to be the bane of my existence for any kind of intimacy and connection and um and i don't and i really don't like it and uh for me like for instance being on the phone in bed i think is one of the worst things couples can do and um or the, for me at least i don't want to sit there and sit on our phones not talking to each other in sure, bed sure but on the flip side unless i want to ignore my partner and i'm <laughs> actively ignoring him 
I would rather, yeah, exactly. Right, but but on the flip, you know what? I don't really want to. But connect. on the flip side of that, but, though, Kate, though, like I, the technology can actually a, 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 advance sort of your intimacy. Meaning, depending on how you look at well, it, well, because you're you can you can in. Facetime each other, you can sext each other, you can have digital sex. You know what I mean? Which isn't a bad thing. I mean, we are actors, and so we're away from our kids. I can see them every single day now. I mean, technology has allowed me to do that. And it's when, a both end. Right. And, you yeah, know, yeah. laziness used to exist before, too. And before that, people watch TV to be lazy sometimes. And sometimes people read, read the newspaper and were lazy. And sometimes people were in their garden and were lazy. So the idea of not making the effort to engage with the people around us has always existed. The need for communication and connection has always existed. And the means change. So the, then the question becomes, where is the need, where is the means helping us? And where does the means sometimes kind of, you know, not really help us, to put it in simple language? Um, and it really is a both end. I think after these two years or 18 months now, we are very clear that it's both end. It has given us tremendous ways to remain connected to people. And at the same time, there's a different story. You know, it's very interesting. I, 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 I spent the pandemic at one point creating a game. I want, because I felt that we are this social atrophy that you're describing. I felt like there must be a way to, to create something tangible that we can use to experience more intimacy, more connection, etc. And I never could hold the cards the entire two years. 18 months. Couldn't hold it. I, I was imagining all of this. This was, you know, and it was, a, and then one day I held it. And then I thought, you cannot play this thing like that on Zoom. Of course, you can try and you, and it will be better than not. But there is something about sitting in the room and seeing people engage with each other playfully that, and with curiosity that, you know, so I am constantly in the both end. I can do therapy work online and I think it is phenomenal that I can do therapy work online. I can bring in your friends and your siblings in ways that I could never do. I can do where should we begin the podcast? I can do where should we begin the game online or both of them. And I, I think all the time that I have this tool. And at the same time, I notice you know, we may meet and speak for an hour and I will never know what you look like beyond this. I don't know how you move. I don't know how tall you are. I've, I don't know your, your, your physical language. I, I hear you speak, you know. I'm making eye contact with you, but I know that when I will look at it afterwards, I'm looking to the side and we're not really seeing each other and there's no mirror neurons firing at each other. And that is there too. So, you know, you talked about, was my father touching? Yes, we can... We can speak the touch, but it's, and sometimes I can even imagine the touch on my skin that you would be communicating with me via the, the digital. But there is still a different experience at this moment if you hold my hands for real. I think that you know that with your kid. You can FaceTime your kid, and then when you hold the hand of your kid or when you hug your child, that experience, the way that will be internalized, is still very different than. The, 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 the translation that we experience here. And we can have this very long conversation about what we gain and what we lose. And you're right. We live in this world. We want it. And at the same time, there is still something in the embodied life 
that I don't want to give up. Oh, no, 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 no. That's my love language, physical touch. I need to be touched. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Are you, do you believe in the mystical? You know, I mean, because I was picturing your parents meeting on this road to freedom, visualizing it. And do you believe that we are all interconnected somehow and that there are, there's a greater power at play? Not, I'm not talking about God and religion necessarily. I'm just talking about energy and the reasons that, that things happen and your parents meeting on this road. Or is it just, hey, it, it, fuck it. It just is what it is. I don't know. Well, there's a distinction between, hey, fuck it, and destiny stories. Mm-hmm. There's a few things in between. Do I believe in the destiny plot? Not exactly. It was meant to happen. It's fate. That is not a language that is particularly interesting to me. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't... Um, I relish happenstance and surprise and serendipity and, and, and improvisation. And then I can say, you know, wow, you could never make this up. This doesn't happen for no reason. But that doesn't mean that I consider it destiny and meant to happen. By the way, in relationships, there is a view that says that those of us who have a destiny relationship mentality, we met, it was ha- meant to happen are also the ones that are often more easily disillusioned and therefore the ones that uh, give up more so- faster because they basically say, well, at first it was meant to happen and now it's no, well, it wasn't meant to happen. Whereas people who come in with what is called the growth mentality, that, you know, you, you come in, something brought you together and from there you build and you transform and you grow are often people that will more likely invest because they have a sense that the agency is their own and not what you consider those mystical realities of mm-hmm. it was fate, it was meant to be, it was divine intervention and things like that. Yeah. In romantic love, that's actually a very important distinction. That makes a lot of sense. The destiny mentality and the growth mentality. It's sort of like you're not thinking about the actual act of growing in the relationship or the things that you bring to the table. You're thinking like this is just some unconditional idea of... Of, Right, destiny. Like, oh, we're meant to be together, so so fuck it. There we go. We don't have to work on anything (laughs) at all. Yeah, this is just... Shouldn't shouldn't everything just be the fine? Yeah. Right. It's seamless. We have to make no effort. It was just meant to be. And then when it becomes difficult, Difficult. People find it harder to know what to do because if it was just meant to be and it came from outside and it just dropped on me like that in this enchanted state, then you often feel a little more bereft. Mm-hmm. When, when did when did you just because I, I'm assuming I mean and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm assuming just based on the your your podcast and your book that relationships and the core that being sort of the core. Um, center now of most families is that relationship, that that's become a big part, or if not the most of the part of the work that you like to sort of invest in, right? I mean, I have a predilection for couples' work. Yeah. Yes. Pairs. I, I love I couples' need you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, Why I, does I, she I, need me? It's uh, interesting uh, you because, <laughs> because, because, well, no, because I, I always say in my life, the thing that's always been consistent for me is work. Like, the things that come easy are my friendships, my work relationships, my relationship to my career, my relationship to my kids. And the thing that's always have been a challenge for me are, are is the is the couple is the is the actual relationship and you know 
sort of how, how it moves and how it grows and my and my tolerance. Um, no, so so and then for me, and then and then we'll give you some context here. For me, relationships have always been smooth. I've been in love twice, and then the third time I've been married. I'm 20 years in. We'll talk about infidelities and how we came out of it amazingly, which was why your podcast sort of resonate, or sorry, your TED talk resonated with me so much. But I hope my podcast too. <laughs> it does too. But this specific I have loads of TED sessions talk. about that very topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but so for me, my insecurities come more sort of in form in the form of my career or am I good enough or, you know, I'm comparing myself and I can get depressed around those areas. Now, mm -hmm. our dad left when we were five or six years old, four years old, three years old for Kate. And sort of that was a big impact in our lives. Um, it affected her a little bit differently than it affected me, you know. So going back to Kate. Why can't she have a happy relationship? <laughs> it's not about happy. It's not about having a happy relationship. I think for me, it's like, it's, well, you know. Can I reframe the question for you? Yeah. Yes. CBT. What is it that you know you do in your friendships and that makes you so good at being a friend? that you find challenging to bring into your romantic relationship? That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> well, I would say I have less expectation from my friendships in terms of like what I need from them on a daily basis, mm -hmm. one. Good. Mm -hmm. um, good. <laughs> two... I don't have to see them all the time. Um, <laughs> like I, ha I'm, I'm easier with sort of having more independence. It's easier for me to be independent with my friends. Um, that goes together with expectations, because right. expectations means you need that person, and that means you depend on that person, and that means that person has a certain power over you. Right. By definition, it's not negative, positive. It's just, and with your friends, you temper your expectations, which then makes you feel that you are less dependent on them, less needing of them, and then less disappointed in them and less resentment, resentful of them. To me, it always is, you know, what happens, you know, why can you temper your expectations with your friends? You take it for granted because it's easy for you to do. But in fact, in many situations, that's not the case for people. They, they come with a lot of different expectations to their friends. They are continuously in situations where they think I'm a better friend to you than you are to me. It's not equal, etc., etc. You, because it's an easy one, you say no issue there. And I say to you, instead of looking at why you have a problem here, uh, switch the, 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 the model and ask yourself, what is it that I can do in every one of these other situations? That what, did, what do they draw out of me? The work one, the friendship one, the parental one. These are all difficult systems. They happen to not be difficult for you. Therefore, look at your strengths in those relationships and then see what you can transfer into your relationship with him. That's coming from a resilience model rather than the way you framed your question, which is to come from a deficiency model. What's wrong here? What's missing here? What can't I do here? That's where I was going. How, how, 
how big of a part does sex play in a relationship? And I, I ask this because depends for me, on the people. Well, for me, I, I yeah, you're no, you're right, you're right. But <laughs> it he, depends on the people. But here's the thing, I, though. I always say this. I'm like, if I don't have an incredible sexual relationship with mm-hmm. my partner. Mm-hmm. then I might as well be living with my best friend, John, and raising kids together as friends, you know? Mm-hmm. And now if that is the model that's for you, great. If everyone's- Well, you answered for yourself. You answered for yourself. For you, that connection is a imp- very important part of the intimate bond. But for other people, that is not the story. See, the thing about a question like that is that it presumes a kind of a universal norm. And this is absolutely not the case. If I have one message about relationships, it's usually that there isn't a one-size-fits-all. There are some people for whom actually to be with my best friend, John, in a more platonic co-parenting arrangement, in a deep sense of friendship and affection, is more than I've ever hoped for because sex has been cruel, sex has been painful, sex has been abusive, sex has been all kinds of things but pleasurable and intimately connected for example, or I am struggling with all kinds of issues of health and therefore sex is not that kind of sex. It's a different sexuality that doesn't just involve the act of lovemaking in the kind of penis in vagina heterosexual model that often is the dominant model. So even when you say sex, what are we talking about? Well, I guess, yeah, I guess what I'm saying though is like when you're starting out with someone and the sex is hot and heavy and it's really mm-hmm. great. And then as you continue on in your relationship, one of the partners is like, well, let's keep that going. The other one sort of fizzles out. Now you're separate. Now you've got a, now you've got a, a divide, a sexual divide. How do you mm-hmm. remedy something like that? Because I feel like that alone can dis- could destroy a relationship. But it depends why you have a divide. The divide may be because imagine that that person who used to be so present you know, is no longer paying much attention to you at all. You're constantly having to deal with, you know, when a person is on the phone while you're talking to them, you have a sense of ambiguous loss. They're physically present, but they're emotionally absent. You know, so Mm -hmm. you're there, but not there. And that's when the other person feels a certain kind of loneliness that is really, you know, it's like it's easier to be alone when I'm totally by myself in the end. From that place, for a lot of people, sex becomes like the last thing on their mind. So what is the divide? Is the divide rooted in loneliness, in resentment, in, 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 you know, in unresolved conflict, in particular dynamics in the relationship, in health concerns, in, in, in depression, in mental, el- mental health issues? That, the divide, in order to know what to do and how you remedy it, you really have to understand what is making me shut down with you and am i only shut down with you or am i shut down as a as a whole because because i've disconnected from myself in such a way that i am out of touch with my own erotic self is it depression is it anxiety is it you know whatever are the major things that may be affecting me um and from that place you then say what is it that needs to be remedied here you know why is one person shying away from the other. And what is the other person doing? Are you getting angry? Are you getting impatient? Do you feel like, you know, you're not getting your due? How, how is that being dealt with? How is the distancer and the pursuer, 
What are, how was the dance between these two people? How are they handling this desire discrepancy? Is it because you basically have had sex the way you like it for all these years without ever really have asked me what I wanted? Right. And in the beginning, I was willing to do everything you like because I wanted you. I mean, there are so many plots. If Without the narrative... You don't know the truth. That's why, you know, that's the most important thing. I mean, that does make a lot of sense. You know, when I'm, when, you know, I, I always believe that that what is happening in the bedroom is pro- usually a pretty good mirror, unless it's performative. It's a pretty good mirror of how you're communicating with each other in your daily life. It's, you know, and what you, and and how deep you know about someone else's desires. Like, I find that to be almost more intimate than the act itself. That, of that, course. That, that you can actually express to someone, like, what your desires are. He licks the mattress, so, the wonderful, wonderful mattress. Bingham. Oh, yeah. Is now on a helix. Is he? Is he feeling it? So I got, yeah, I was like, Bing, I got Bing a new bed mm-hmm. and he needed a mattress. I was like, okay, I'm going to get him a Helix because <laughs> it comes, it's easy and it's comfortable and he loves it. So let me explain how this works. So he- Helix Sleep has a quiz. It takes two minutes to complete and it matches your body type and your sleep preference to the perfect mattress for you. So why would you want to buy a mattress that's made for someone else? Everybody's unique and they know that. So there's all these different mattress models that you get to choose from. Soft, medium, firm, you know, mattresses that are great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Uh, Mattresses that are great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains. Um, And they even have a Helix Plus mattress for plus-sized sleepers. So I was matched with a Midnight Luxe. And that is perfect for my personality because- Same with me. I'm a night owl. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm a midnight guy. Are you? Mm-hmm. I'm so happy I'm not a night person. I'm such a morning person. I'm By like 8.30, I'm like, I can feel my pillow. I'm like, I'm, I, I like, it's like I'm like hypnotized. So go to helix.com slash sibling. Take their two-minute sleep quiz. They'll match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. Helix is offering up to $200 off of all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at Helix Sleep. Dot com slash sibling. One of the things that's always bothered me about the, the, the sort of heterosexual male-female dynamic is that for some reason, men are the ones with all of these like, like sexual fantasy ideas and that they hide them instead of actually in- encouraging the communication of the things that they're interested in or want to get into. That's vulnerability. You have to feel vulnerable enough and okay right. enough and safe enough to be able to say those things. Or, and risk that it might be something that your partner, it might make them feel insecure or it might them make them feel uncomfortable or it might make them, you have to enter that field of intimacy and conversation so that you can get closer and understand each other. So if Danny you know. just br- brought home a strap-on and was like, I'm ready to go, <laughs> <laughs> you'd be okay with that. <laughs> I'm sure we'd have to talk about it, Oliver. <laughs> but you see, what's so, what's so interesting is that that is true, Kate. And so, too, is the quality of revelation is shaped by the quality of the listening. If you anticipate judgment, ridicule, 
humiliation, which are three major vulnerabilities around male sexuality, then you don't reveal. You basically, the majority of the time, people will say what they think is okay to say that they think the other person can bear listening. And that's why, I, I, you know, when you said it's all more than the act itself, yes, sex is not something you do. It is a place you go with yourself and with another. What's this trip you take? Where are you going? What are you connecting with? What are you expressing? It's a language. And that is back to your question. It's like the person who gets disinterested is often disinterested in the plot. Not be and then the, because the act without the plot Doing it is not really the only thing. It's the meaning you attach to it is where it takes you. There's people can do it for centuries and me feel absolutely not. Yeah, on that point, <laughs> I've experienced emotional sex only in the last three or four years. Okay. Meaning, of course, you're emotionally connected to the person that you're making love to when, when it's your wife, but very physical and amazing. My sex life has always been amazing with Aaron, my wife. But something happened. I went to, I, I just did a lot of deep, deep work on myself. And Say it all. I Say went it. to ha this place called the Hoffman Institute. <laughs> ah, you did Hoffman. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was incredible for me and dealing Wonderful. with all the stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I came out of that and mm -hmm. with this vulnerability that I have never experienced in my life and this freedom because I was unafraid to be vulnerable and I didn't mm -hmm. care that this perception that I had that people would think that my vulnerability was not masculine enough. And yes, was all, weak and was weak, boy. right. It, it, it totally switched. Mm -hmm. And my sex Wonderful. life, our sex life became something that was just inexplicable almost. It took it to a level. Wonderful. And I, for the first time, experienced what it was like to be truly vulnerable. And then we talk about sort of allowing my wife, my vulnerability allowed it Aaron, allowed Aaron to open up too and to go places that we have never gone before physically and emotionally as well. And it was really a beautiful, beautiful experience for me, you know? And um, mm -hmm. it fizzle, it fades a little bit because you, you live in this bubble for a minute, you know? But what were you going to say about emotional sex? Well, that was the first time I had actually felt connected oh during like set, super like, oh, connected and just uh, like deeply the sexually idea that erotic love. intimacy becomes a very deeply layered revelation of oneself yeah that I you love speak it. your inner truth through this language called sexuality you go to do a week-long intensive insight-oriented journey and you relish the complexities and the layers of your inner life that you're just discovering. And then another part of you wishes for simplicity. And I think that we constantly straddle both, you know, a kind of a fantasy of simplicity, but also a deep acceptance of complexity. And if you ask me what interests me in relationships and in human relationships and in couples and in love, it's that. It's that duality that I'm deeply fascinated in. And I've always wanted to find a way to make the complex accessible and to talk about what many of us have sensed and somehow know, but have not necessarily had the words to put to it. 
and to help people have difficult conversations. You know, that's part of why I, I you know, I, I do it in therapy. I do it by creating a game. I want to facilitate these conversations, but it is about how to facilitate a deep engagement with the part of our life, our relationships that is central to all of us and that many of us wish we'd sometimes lived better. But it doesn't always happen this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, what if you don't have a willing partner? You know, what if the things that you desire are just unwilling or, or just constantly overlooked? I mean, then, you know... Because it's one thing to talk about, you know. It can't always work out. Well, it depends which culture you live in, right? If you live in a culture that puts individual happiness at the center, you're going to think very differently. And when I say culture, it's your personal culture, your family culture, and your global culture. Do you live in the model of individual happiness at the center? Then you're going to think very differently about how you're going to get your needs met and if you even should come with needs and if you're allowed to have expectations and what expectations are okay. And all of that is mediated in a power structure and in a cultural uh, uh, tradition. Versus if you live in a place where, you know, you can't always get what you want and that is marriage and you do the best with the cards that you have in your hands and um, you're going to have to just live with that and somehow tolerate it. That's a very different, you know, map for how you're going to deal with your frustrations and your dissatisfactions. You know, did you learn to suffer? Did you learn to accept sacrifice? Did you learn to accept the idea that, you know, you're never going to get what you want? Did you learn that what you wanted was too much? Did you learn that you were too much to handle? You know, there's so many pieces to how we deal with this is the work of the therapist, is to really help unpack that. Um, and I'm sorry I can't give you simplicity. <laughs> <laughs> I feel, I mean, I... I um, A free frolic. <laughs> what do you think is kind of the most common core... Uh, whether it be a problem or a situation that you find of all the work that you've done with patients in relationships that kind of comes up yeah, all the time. Pattern. There are really various ways to answer this. Really, there is not one answer. But the one that comes up at this moment for me is if you look at it in terms of what is problematic, I would say that sometimes what is problematic is that people are too close they are fused. There is nothing one person can feel that the other person doesn't personalize. There's not enough air between them. What one person breathes out, the other person breathes in. And it is too enmeshed. And sometimes you're dealing with relationships that are too far apart, where one person can be weeping and the other one barely notices it. And there is a gap between them and they're not connected enough. I think that that is one major continuum. Is there a need for more connection and more closeness? Is there a need for more differentiation and more separateness? That would be one uh, major uh, axis on which you look. Then you look vertically. Is this, where is the hierarchy? So it's love and power. Connection. The, the continuum of connection and love, affection, and the continuum of power, hierarchy, and structure. 
Is there a clear structure? Is there a fluidity of power? Is there a reciprocity of power? Or is there a very strict hierarchy? Is it highly structured or is it completely chaotic? That would be the next axis. I think that that is your basic primary map that you can take to look at relationships. What about in your relationships, since this is your world? Like, how do you, <laughs> how do you even approach your own relationships? It's like, oh man, this is I'm going to be analyzed to the to the nth degree. Or do you make mistakes? You know, or can you self analyze? And, 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 and can you spin <laughs> you know, out I'm of married control? married to a psychologist, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Oh, they're both of you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, typically when you ask us a question, I think one of us would say, who do you want to hear from? Because we probably will have very different answers. And the ability to live with these multiple stories is probably a strength as well. We don't have one coherent narrative. We don't agree necessarily on what makes it work. We have a different view of it. And it changes, you know. Um, I think the best thing I've ever been able to describe was that, because you talked about, you know, the two loves and then the third person that you are with. I, I think that many people today in the West are going to have more than one relationship, one love relationship in their adult life. And some of us are going to do it with the same person. So I would say we have had many marriages to each other. My answer is not the same when I met him in my 20s that I do decades later now. You know, the power dynamics have shifted. The balance of interdependence has shifted. The structure changed from when we had little ones to now having no one, no, none of them in the house with us, to what happened to us physically, to our health, to the loss of our parents. To It's that. All of that changed the way that we, re, we relate in that sense. But yes, there was a certain language of affection that has remained very central. Um, a humor, shared interests, a sense of adventure, all of that. At the same time as, you know, then comes a pandemic, then you suddenly realize, wow, we are fragile. We, we are considered elderly suddenly, you know, never thought of myself as elderly, but here we are. And so suddenly you begin to think about vulnerability differently. You know, it's not the same as the vulnerability definition that I would have when I think of myself or him in our 30s. So it's that. And I think really what, what is important for me is not longevity per se. It's really how do couples maintain a sense of aliveness, of vibrancy, of vitality. In friendship, when the vitality and the vibrancy gets lost, the, the relationship fizzles out and you move on to other friends. And by definition, you think of a friendship as a very vibrant relationship. The same thing needs to happen in romantic love. Romantic love, unfortunately, has the, the feature of starting out uber vibrant and alive and, and erotic, erotic in the sense alive, not just sexual. And then it fizzles out. And often it is because of laziness as you were describing early on, there's a sense of complacency and a sense of bringing the leftovers home, you know, and the best goes elsewhere. And it's that. It's how do you let people understand that if this, need, this needs to be watered, it's a relationship that really needs active engagement. You don't have these fascinating conversations with your girlfriend and boring conversations with your partner kind of thing. 
Um, you can do it. We do it. We all do it. But those of us who manage to really keep it alive, when they sense that, they, they, they infuse energy, they resuscitate, they understand, you know, we have got to engage. And that is, everybody knows it. And for some reason, it's very hard for people to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm. I we are going to end on that note because I know you have to go and I just have to say I want to talk to you again. Oh, no, me too. I'm going to call you <laughs> offline. I hope we I get already an have opportunity so many stories I wanted to, to tell you. Speak again. <laughs> and I just love the work that you do and I I I want everyone to know your podcast Where Should We Begin is brilliant. Your book Made in Captivity is a must read and you've got that new game coming out which is also called Where we should begin too, right? It's a. It's out. It's out. It's oh, on good! The it's out. It's up there to play and to get. <laughs> Before you go, too, I I've been playing sexual games forever. Like I have created these games with my wife. Do you know the game mm-hmm. Jenga? You know where you pull out the pieces and it topples over. Yep. Okay. And then we also play sexual Yahtzee, but sexual jank is good too. Where on each piece, you write out a desire, something physically that you want done to you. And you can be as X-rated as you want to be. And when you pull out the piece, you read it. And it says something crazy, like maybe intercourse from behind for 10 seconds. Totally gross. And then boom, then you're done. You got to stop. And then you keep pulling out pieces and you're doing these things to each other. And you can't finish the game because you're- May I make a suggestion? Yes. All right. You get yourself a Where Should We Begin? The Game of Stories. There are cards with pink triangle. Those are the sex questions. If you want to play with your kids or with your friends, you can take those out. If you want to play with Erin, you can just play those. Yeah. And then you come back and you tell me, after having played those cards, oh, good. if you learn things about each other that you had never shared. Ooh. Okay. This is so fun. Um, <laughs> thank you, so, thank you much so much for sharing your thank insight you so much. with us. Sibling Revelry is executive produced by Kate Hudson and Oliver Hudson. Producer is Allison Bresnik. Editor is Josh Windish. Music by Mark Hudson, a.k.a. Uncle Mark. If you want to show us some love, rate the show and leave us a review. This show is powered by Simplecast. You looking for some amazing TV to stream? Well, indulge yourself with the hits on Hulu that you can't miss. Dive in with Barney, Ted, Robin, and the gang on How I Met Your Mother. All nine seasons are streaming on Hulu. Then you can move on to Modern Family, Schitt's Creek, and My Wife and Kids. We're talking every episode and every season of these shows. We're talking huge hits. Streaming on Hulu whenever you're in the mood. Now we're talking. The only thing better than getting delivery from Target is getting unlimited same-day delivery from Target. While you're on vacation, okay? Sign up for the new Target Circle 360 so you can stock up on food, supplies, pool stuff, and everything in between without ever interrupting your summer plans. Also, summer hosting is so much easier when you have unlimited same-day delivery from Target. Take care of your guests. Target takes care of the rest. Sign up for the new Target Circle 360 today. Visit Target.com slash Circle or the Target app for more details. Same-day delivery is subject to terms. Supplies to orders over $35.
Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.